team foreign desk usually gets together on a Monday to start thinking about the following Saturday's show. Though it would be annoying for us, it would probably be good news for the world if we had a run of weeks in which we struggled to come up with anything. To understate matters wildly, this was not a problem we faced in 2023. This special episode wraps up some highlights of an eventful year. We responded, of course, to significant news stories, recording a special live episode following the Hamas massacres in Israel on October 7th. But we were also able to delve into stories behind the headlines, considering, for example, such subtexts as the degree to which Germany was hobbled by its own history from being quite the ally Ukraine needed. This episode is partially chosen by the Foreign Desk's listeners, in that we've excerpted a few of the year's most popular episodes, and partially chosen by the Foreign Desk's presenter and producers, in that we've also picked a few of our own personal favourites. What actually was the year's most played episode? How do the producers find our guests? And why isn't any of this about Australia? Pretty sure I was clear about that. This is the Foreign Desk. I would go from the embassy home to my apartment. I would change into dark gray clothes and then drive around Moscow for two hours where I really did some checking for whether I had a surveillance team following me. Germany is terribly afraid of assuming a leadership role. And I must say that even on some occasions when it has, there's a lot of backlash from other countries about what are the Germans telling us what to do already. Nobody hasn't lost people. I have friends who were killed in the South. So, you know, to keep your eye on the news and to try to approach this in a professional manner when you're so personally affected is very challenging. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. First of all, some highlights of our conversations with spies from what turned out to be the year's most listened to episode, reflecting a widespread fascination with the undercover realm. This was Willie Carlin, who worked for MI5 in Northern Ireland. We spoke to Willie a couple of weeks before he died, aged 76. I remember during the hunger strike, the assembly elections came along in 82, and I was asked to help get Martin elected. Now, at that time, the British government would have known to do with Martin McGuinness. They seen him as a terrorist, but... The Frew and some people now back on the scene from MI5 said to me, look, if you can help get Martin McGuinness elected to the Northern Dale Assembly, he'll be a legitimate assemblyman, and then we'll be able to talk to him. Whereas at the moment, we can't be seen talking to a terrorist. So I was the one, along with several others, that helped Martin get elected in 1982. I became his election agent, and the rest is history. I was very close to being caught. There was a man called Steak Knife. His name was Freddie Capatici. And he came down to Derry to find out where was this leak because McGuinness was asked about an ex-soldier who was in Sinn Féin that they were interested in. And McGuinness says, get lost, you know. There's a guy called Wally Karen, but I trust him in my life. But down they came anyway. And just before... They got Scapatici and his team, the Norton squad, they went to Cable Street, which was Shenhead headquarters. And when they went in there, 
somebody, and I don't know who it was, to this very day, tipped off the fruit that these people were on their way to my house, and I was extracted within hours. That was Willie Carlin, and this was Martha Peterson, the first female officer sent by the CIA to work in the Soviet Union. I had a day job that I had to do, and I can't describe it more than that, but it was a full-time job in the embassy. That's what I did full-time. I actually had three Soviet women or four Soviet women who worked in the next office and were were, uh, very friendly. And so what I had to do was live as if I were, you know, a regular office clerk. And then at lunchtime and in the after work in the evening, I would slip up to our station and do my preparation for my on the street work. Can you talk a bit about what that on the street work involves? Again, it's that it's one of those things that I think everybody has an idea of that they will have absorbed from uh, from fiction. But is the reality anything to do with that at all? In a way, it is, because what I had to do was first determine whether I had surveillance teams following me around Moscow. And after several months, I determined that they weren't following me and they really believed that I was just a young single woman assigned there and they they did not feel threatened in any way. So I would go from the embassy home to my apartment. I would change into dark gray clothes and then drive around Moscow for two hours where I really did some checking for whether I had a surveillance team following me. And with that confirmation in my mind, I would then park my car and slip into the subway and ride several stops and change trains. It's classic movie drama. And then approach the site where I would put down a dead drop, a catch for my agent. I mean, that, that particular asset, a, a man called Alexander Ogorodnik, um, what were you able to learn from a single source? And did you ever get any understanding of what real world effects that relationship had? Well, we got incredible information from uh, him. He was working within the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Moscow, and he had access to all the communications from the Soviet ambassadors in every capital city around the world, including Washington, D.C. As you recall, this was a time when the SALT treaties were being discussed and worked on. So his access to the Soviet game plan through these documents that he photographed was invaluable during that time. The relationship ends in in 1977 with with his death by suicide after being arrested and and your arrest as well by the KGB on the the subject of, I guess, scenes from a movie drama. Were you surprised that your time in Moscow ended like that? Or is that, uh, I guess, something that someone doing that job factors in as an occupational hazard? We all factor that into going to Moscow and we're prepared to end our tours if that's what happens. But I must say, I was committed to this agent and I was horrified that something might have happened to him when I was arrested. But they knew where I was going to be and they picked me up and 
took me to Lubyanka prison. So it wasn't something that I hadn't played in my head some, but in reality, we all hoped that would never come. That was the former CIA agent, Martha Peterson. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. This is The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. Our second biggest hit this year was an episode taking a look at the wider ramifications of an ageing global population. This was James Ramo, a social demographer and professor of sociology, and the Henry Vent III Professor of East Asian Studies at Princeton University. This is social science, this is human behaviour, so there is no real simple answer. But I think that in my field, demography, for example, I think the conventional wisdom for understanding why fertility in particular is so low in both Japan and South Korea has to do with the gender landscape, if you will. I think first it's important to recognize that conditional on getting married, forming a family, fertility is not necessarily any lower in Japan or Korea than it is in the United States, the UK, whatever. The issue is getting married, forming families. And I think that's where we really focus a lot of our attention when we try to understand low fertility in these countries. What are the reasons why young men and young women increasingly delay or choose to never marry and therefore never have children? There is no non-marital childbearing, unlike in most other Western Mm -hmm. countries. I mentioned the gender landscape. I think there are a lot of reasons to think that the work environment, family expectations, family norms, and so on are such that young women in particular are kind of faced with an either-or choice. You can have a career or you can have a family. It's really hard to have both. And for men, I think the expectations of being sort of the primary earner and breadwinner, if you will, in that kind of environment may also be increasingly unattractive or unattainable for some people. The aspect of women making this decision is something that I think drives demographic decline across the developed world. It's gone, and please stop me if I'm wrong, but it's gone hand in hand with female emancipation everywhere, as women now realise or are allowed to have options beyond merely staying at home and raising a family. But again, some of the numbers or some of the polling from South Korea in particular is extraordinary. Something like 65% of young women, 45% of young men saying they simply have no interest at all in starting a family. How sudden has that been? Is that a single generation shift? No, it's something that I think has evolved over time. And I think the nature of that evaluation of alternative life paths has changed as, as you mentioned, women have increasingly achieved higher levels of education. I think if you think about South Korea, for example, 70, 80% of young women and men go to four-year universities. It's not quite that high in Japan, but it's still quite high. Access to meaningful career-type jobs, it may not be the same as it is in Sweden or Germany or the Netherlands or whatever, but it's certainly higher than it has been in the past. And that's not something that sort of happened overnight, but has unfolded over a period of decades. I think there's a tendency to think, and this is certainly true if you listen to Japanese politicians, it's a women's issue. This is women choosing not to get married and not to have children. But I think that's a real misconception. And you mentioned the very high levels of both men and women. And I think it's really important to understand that the decision to form a family, that's not something women make on their own. That's a joint decision, obviously. And the factors that are 
perceived as impediments or difficulties in balancing the different things that people want out of life, that's relevant for both men and women, I think. In both Japan and South Korea, this is obviously of concern to the governments. Governments fear declining populations for, I mean, fairly sentimental, atavistic reasons of national prestige. You don't like to feel like you're governing a literally dying out country. But there is also the hard-headed economic concern, which is if there are not going to be any more young people and there's going to be increasing numbers of old people, then who on earth is going to pay for and look after the old people? What kind of steps have we seen the governments of Japan and South Korea take to try and encourage the production of more Japanese and South Koreans? And have they had any luck with any of them? So another question that has kept many people in my field (laughs) busy for the past several decades. With respect to what has been done, I think that there are sort of simple things that have been done, such as raising the age of eligibility for full pension benefits, reducing some of the levels of support with respect to medical care costs at older ages, co-pays increasing, things like that. But that's really a kind of drop in the bucket, if you will. And the politicians, the bureaucrats who are trying to tackle this from a policy perspective, they're smart. They understand exactly what we just talked about with respect to the core issue, you know, not being People are living longer, but people aren't being born <laughs> as the real reason for population aging and population decline. A real emphasis has been placed on trying to lower the barriers to the ability to have both. So going back to that point we were just talking about with respect to the tension between having a career and having a family. And there are many, many, I mean, countless policies that have been implemented over the past 20 or 30 years designed to enhance childcare support, access to high quality daycare, the ability for women and men to take time off subsequent to births, maternity leave, paternity leave, other efforts to minimize work-family conflict, facilitate the balance. And if you look at the data to answer your question, it doesn't look like there's been much effect of these policies. But I think in my world, we always ask, what's the counterfactual, so to speak? Mm. What would the world have looked like in the absence of these policies? And of course, we don't know that. And perhaps in Japan, the total fertility rate would be like it is in Korea now in the absence of these policies. It's really hard to know that. It's impossible to know that. But I think the bottom line is the policy goal surely has been to raise fertility up near two, <laughs> if possible. And that has not happened. That was James Ramo at Princeton University. This is The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. Unsurprisingly, Ukraine's ongoing struggle for survival was a recurring theme, as was the curious hesitation of many of Ukraine's neighbours and allies when it came to helping Ukraine with the weapons and money it needed to defend itself, and Ukraine would certainly argue the rest of us, from Russia. We spoke to the author and philosopher Susan Nyman about the historical roots of Germany's ambivalence. I would say that the first time there was an official German recognition of the fact that Germans were not the victims of the war, but its perpetrators, 
the first West German acknowledgement of that fact was on May 8th, 1985, when the then president, Richard von Weizsäcker, made a speech on the 40th anniversary of the end of the war that for most people outside Germany would be rather banal, simply pointing out that yes, the Germans had suffered a great deal during the war, which was a litany. West Germany, at least, was mostly involved in but actually other people suffered more and their suffering was our fault. Now, this particular bit of wisdom, the very fact, if you go over the speech, and it's a very famous speech, the very fact that it caused a stir says a lot about German denial up to that point in time. But one president's speech, of course, doesn't change everything. And he only said it because for a couple of decades, people had been working to force a kind of reckoning with the Nazis' historical crimes. Those were intellectuals, those were church groups, artists who had been in grassroots situations arguing against this wall of denial, which was kind of, well, war is terrible and everybody does terrible things in war and let's forget all about it. But one has to note that East Germany was very different. East Mm. Germany was founded by anti-fascists who had spent the war either in concentration camps, fighting in Spain, or they were in exile. So they were genuine anti-fascists, unlike the West German government, which was full of old Nazis. Uh, This is not a controversial claim, by the way. There is a historical debate about whether East Germany's anti-fascism was simply instrumentalized against the West or whether it was genuine. I wrote 50 pages of a chapter in my book on exactly that question. I interviewed many, many people, and I had that chapter in particular fact-checked by three historians of contemporary Germany because I knew that would be a controversial claim. So East Germany did a better job initially, even though, of course, they also instrumentalized their anti-fascism. West Germany didn't officially come round, you know, until much later. One interesting example is Willy Brandt, who, of course, himself was in exile Mm. during the war as a social democrat, not as a Jew. But, of course, the Nazis were equally interested in killing or disabling communists and social democrats as they were Jews. The fact that he had gone into exile in Norway was used against him by Konrad Adenauer in campaigns for the chancellery, which is very telling. He did finally get elected. There was that very famous picture of him kneeling in front of the Warsaw Ghetto Memorial, which did make people think that all of Germany felt that sense of atonement and sorrow. But in fact, it was an isolated gesture. Most of Germany was against it. And Brandt was out of office very quickly. So really not till the end of the 80s do you begin to get the sense that Germany as a whole puts its historical crimes in the center of its historical narrative. 
Do you think then it's fair to say that at this point Germany is kind of hiding behind this as an excuse not to fully embrace the leadership role that it really should assume where Europe is concerned? You know, this is a question of should assume, who should assume it. Look, Germany is terribly afraid of assuming a leadership role. And I must say that even on the uh, some occasions when it has, there's a lot of backlash from other countries about what are the Germans telling us what to do already? You know, one does hear that or see pictures of Angela Merkel with a Hitler mustache. I am not a great defender of Angela Merkel, but I must say that every time Germany does take a step forward, other European nations are fairly quick to play the Nazi card at them. I have argued for many, many years that Germany needs to take a stronger leadership role in the EU. I would agree with you very much. And I wouldn't say that it's hiding behind its past as a refusal to do it. It's a genuine fear that Germany made a mistake some years ago by trying to play a leadership role and fear that other countries will resent it. I mean, I've had many conversations where people said people don't want us telling them what to do, particularly new members of the EU that were occupied perhaps mm. during the war. Most of Europe was occupied during the war, but it's tricky. So I wouldn't say that they're hiding behind it. I would say it plays a role. And that's a kind of Europe-wide problem that needs to be solved. That was the philosopher and author Susan Nyman. This is The Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio. During the second half of this year, we took a break from what was happening to reflect on a few things which had happened. Our series subtitled In the Room spoke to people who had been exactly that at key moments in history. This was Andrew Card, the former White House Chief of Staff, who passed along the most consequential information any US president has received this century. Deb Lauer, who was the acting national security advisor on the trip and the director of the White House Situation Room, came up to me and said, oh, my God, another plane hit the other tower at the World Trade Center. And I knew that this was not a coincidence or an accident. And I did make a decision that the president needed to know. I decided that I would pass on two facts and make one editorial comment. And I would do nothing to invite a question or a dialogue with him because I knew that he was sitting in front of second graders and I didn't want him to react in any way that would demonstrate either fear or angst. I wanted just to pass on the information and then then depart. I presumed a boom microphone was hanging over him, so I didn't want to have a conversation in front of everybody. I did think of what I would say to the president. I walked in and he did not turn around and look for me when I walked in. He didn't even know I'd entered the room. The teacher was conducting a dialogue between the students and the president. He was second grade students. And when the teacher told the students to take out their books, that meant the conversation was over. They were getting their books out to read with the president. And that's when I walked up to him and leaned over and I said, a second plane hit the second tower. America is under attack. And that was all I said to him. I stood back from him so that he couldn't or wouldn't ask me a question. 
I was impressed with how he did react to what I said to him. He did nothing to generate fear in those students. He did nothing to demonstrate fear to the world that would have been to the satisfaction of the terrorists around the world. Instead, I think that he contemplated his legitimate burden that he carries because of the oath that he took to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So I, I was very impressed with how he reacted to what I said to him. I was pleased that he did not get up and demonstrate any fear. And he also did not come with me and leave the venue. It allowed me to go back into the holding room and say, get the FBI director on the phone, get a line open to the vice president, get a line open to the White House Situation Room. Dan Bartlett gets some remarks written for the president. He's going to have to go into a larger auditorium and speak to the guests that were there. And he can't do anything that is not truthful. He's got to be truthful with his words. Don't say anything we do not know to be true. Then the president walked in after he had excused himself from the classroom. And the first thing he said to me when he opened the door and walked into the holding room was get the FBI director on the phone. We could say he's right here, Mr. President. But I, that day, decided my role was to make sure the president was not motivated by emotion, that he was using his own logic and sound thinking to address the challenges that he would have to address that day. So I purposely made sure the president was not surrounded by people who were overly emotional in how they were responding to the challenge of the day, kept him cool, calm, and deliberate. And I tried to be an honest broker as he was challenged with many decisions. You obviously knew the president very well and you worked with him very closely. Uh, During that day, that extraordinary odyssey that Air Force One undertook around the United States, did you have just, I guess, passing informal conversations with him? What did you talk about and what was his state of mind? We had a lot of very candid conversations. Number one, he wanted to go back to Washington, D.C. And I telling him, I don't think you want to make that decision right now. But he got increasingly agitated, kind of even yelling at me that I'm the president, we are going back to Washington, D.C. And I'd say, I understand that, but I don't think you want to make that decision right now. Clearly, the Secret Service was in concerns about what was going on in Washington, D.C. The pilot of Air Force One was also concerned about flying back to Andrews Air Force Base or Joint Base Andrews without knowing that the base was secure. So I kept saying, we're not going back to D.C. yet. We'll go back when we can. But he was pretty agitated, and we did have strong conversations. I always tried to be cool, calm, and collected, but he did yell at me a few times. And I just said, I understand your concern, but I think that it's best that we not implement that right now. But yes, the president and I had a number of candid conversations. We talked about the burden of informing other world leaders and building a coalition, He was thinking about how important it would be that NATO, our allies in NATO, would be informed and pay attention to what was going on. And he was very grateful for the role that Tony Blair was going to be playing with the the British. That was Andrew Card, former White House Chief of Staff under President George W. Bush. There are, of course, weeks when there is no doubt what we'll be covering, but a lot of discussion of how to cover it, specifically how to cover it in a way that everybody else isn't. After Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th, we had a week to decide and did the episode live to be able to respond to such fast-moving events. We spoke to Alison Kaplan-Sommer at Haaretz. 
Well, we're very well adapted. Um, we have, you know, we have a whole newsroom in the bomb shelter. You know, this isn't a new situation being under fire. The hardest part of it is honestly the personal um, connection. There's nobody on our staff who doesn't have a father, brother, son, daughter. All of my colleagues have kids who have been now um, brought into military reserves if they already weren't doing their required army service. Nobody hasn't lost people or at least no people who lost people. I have friends who were killed in the kibbutzim in the in the south. So, you know, to keep your eye on the news and to try to approach this in a professional man- uh, manner when you're so personally affected is very challenging. It's always challenging in Israel because it is such a small country and we are so personally affected. And not only by the fact that we ourselves are going into bomb shelters, but when you've got friends and family involved, you know, trying to keep a professional viewpoint and the whole picture is always very personally challenging. Yossi Meckelberg at Chatham House. I always argued that without peace agreement, there will be violence. Not that I expected something on this, because I expect the Israeli army to be way, way better prepared for that. But the argument is, if you don't deal with the root causes of any conflict anywhere in the world, you'll end in conflict one way or another. The one word with that we really should erase, delete from the dictionary is status quo. Status quo doesn't exist. Status quo is an invention by those who feel in a better position. They don't want to change it without even remotely justify what Hamas said. It's horrific. No one can justify that. No condition should do that. But it's create exactly the ground for this sort of radicalization, extremism to fester, that you have people that think that this is all right. The way that you prepare a war, you need to build a peace. And this was missing. Two million people blockaded for so long without permission to travel out, to perform medical treatment, and living in poverty. That actually, as we can see now, you can switch on and off the electricity, the gas, the water. It led for something. Now, 99.9% of and more of Palestinians not involved with Hamas. They don't involve with militancy. They're paying as we speak. The price for that. But the reality, those are the conditions that enable the most extreme to prosper and Gaith Al-Omari at the Washington Institute. I've been doing this for 25 years. I was involved in the heights of the Second Intifada. And in the worst days, I have not seen so much anger. Today, I don't think there's space for much cooperation, even though there are courageous Palestinians and Israelis who are trying to do it. But ultimately, yes, we need the people to people on the grassroots level to engage. And there are people who are doing it. And from the outside in the West, we should be supporting these people because it's essential. And these people are brave and doing it at their own risk. Yet, to my mind, important as this is, there is no alternative to government level engagement. Ultimately, peace will be done between governments. We need to start working on thinking about how do you rehabilitate the credibility of the Palestinian Authority through reform, through uh, bringing fresh blood? And how do we start pushing Israel towards a more moderate trajectory, unlike what it's been going through in the last few years? Our last three clips are just excerpts from three of our favourite interviews of 2023. This was my selection, a repeat guest on the show whose insights into the practicalities of peacemaking are always worth hearing. Jonathan Powell, former 10 Downing Street Chief of Staff, on the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement he helped bring into being. When Tony Blair and I turned up in uh, Belfast just before the beginning negotiations began on the Good Friday Agreement, George Mitchell said to Tony, 
Uh, he didn't think there was any chance of an agreement. He didn't know why Tony Abel had to come. And Bertie had quite severe reservations about coming. I looked back at my diary the other day and I said just before going to myself that my head told me we wouldn't get to an agreement, but my gut told me we would. And I appointed myself the sort of official optimist and tried to stay optimistic all the way through these negotiations, went, went through a series of ups and downs. It was a very emotional roller coaster. We kept thinking we got an agreement, then it dissolved, and we thought we had an agreement, it dissolved again. So this place where the negotiations were happening, Castle Buildings, was this awful building, being the centre of negotiations for months at that stage, it stank of sweat and stale food, and it was a horrible building. We had an office with no sort of windows on the outside world. And so you got a very emotional roller coaster, particularly after people had been not sleeping for three days and three nights. People got rather hysterical. The last near failure was on the morning of Good Friday. We circulated the draft agreement to everyone. They were all looking at it. The Ulster Unionist Party had invited in lots of their members of 40 or 50 of them sitting downstairs looking at the agreement. And David Trimble came up with John Taylor and told us that it was unsatisfactory on the decommissioning of IRA weapons. They couldn't sign to it. And Tony explained to him that we couldn't reopen the agreement now everyone had it. If we tried to reopen it, we'd be there forever. There's no chance of getting to an agreement. And Trimble said, OK, well, I'll go back and discuss it with my party members and went downstairs. Tony became convinced that it wasn't going to work. We had to do something to get the unionists back on board or we'd lose the thing. So he dictated to me, I had a little laptop, and I dictated to me a side letter to David Trimble offering reassurances on weapons and the issue of decommissioning. He had a security official, John Steele, with him, and they dictated it to me. I typed it up, rushed downstairs. I couldn't get into the union's office. I knocked on the door and they wouldn't let me in because they locked it so they didn't have any people lobbying them. I stuck the letter under the door. They opened the door for me eventually. I went in, went up to the top table, gave the letter to David Trimble. He had John Taylor, his deputy, sitting next to him. John Taylor read it over his shoulder and said, we'll run with that. As soon as he said that, I knew we had it. I left the room, went upstairs, got Tony to call the, the plenary as fast as possible before anyone else changed their minds. And we didn't even sign the agreement. We just went outside, Tony Blair and Bertie Hearn, and gave a press conference announcing the agreement. So even that last stage, we could have lost it. That was Jonathan Powell, the British diplomat, former chief of staff under Tony Blair and chief British negotiator on Northern Ireland. Hello, you're listening to The Foreign Desk. Now I know what you're thinking. Andrew Muller has suddenly lost his Australian accent and has developed a softer and rather feminine voice. But fear not, I'm not Andrew Muller. He'll be back soon. But in the meantime, while he's on a brief hiatus, you're stuck with me, Emma Searle, producer of The Foreign Desk. And I'm thrilled to share a snippet from what I consider to be one of the standout episodes of the show in 2023. In this particular episode, we explored why militaries around the world are enlisting science fiction authors to help dream up the wars of the future. I loved this episode because it beautifully illustrates how a failure of imagination can in fact be a major security risk, and that sometimes foresight can emerge from the most unconventional places. Among our distinguished guests was Peter Singer, a New York Times best-selling author and political strategist. He kicked off the discussion by shedding light on the concept of useful fiction. So at one end of the spectrum, you have science fiction, and I love science fiction, but it's basically like a milkshake. It's purely for, you know, entertainment's sake. At the other end of the spectrum, you've got the kale of the business or policy world, that strategy paper, that white paper. It's really good for you, but how do you get people to consume it? Useful fiction is bringing those two together. So hopefully it's a hybrid, again, of narrative and nonfiction or a hybrid of education and entertainment. 
story is more effective means of conveying new or complex information. A second is story brings in emotion. And um, while we don't like to admit it, whether you are at a car dealership or you are in a cabinet meeting, emotion is more likely to lead to action. Another is um, narrative is more likely to be shared with other people. It's just another natural aspect of it. And then finally is that narrative is um, more likely to break through the noise when there's so much else out there competing for your mind and media space. And we found consistently that it actually has greater impact in changing behavior. There have been some projects that bluntly haven't been designed all that well. They've leaned too much into the science fiction side. You know, let's go off and hire some sci-fi authors and dream up things for us. And unfortunately, what happens is that they dance in the realm of magic too much. It might be too off in the distant future. It'll be a hundred years out. Well, you know, technology 100 years out, politics 100 years out. I mean, you're dancing in the realm of like alien space technology or, you know, how can you conceivably be reasonable about like, you know, what geopolitics is going to look like? And so there have been a couple of projects like that that bluntly have not been all that useful for policymakers. What we do, that's the difference between science fiction and useful fiction. So it's very clear. Start with that nonfiction research and then build a scenario around trying to convey it. So that's how you create the guardrails during the design. You're pulling from that trend report. You're doing interviews of those military officers, those scientists, those business leaders, whatever the product is. And then after you've created it, you're providing it to experts to get their insight and feedback on it. So to give an example, we did a project for um, U.S. Special Operations Command, and it was on what do commando roles look like in the 2040s. We didn't go off and hire a bunch of sci-fi people for it. We started with their strategy. Uh, we did interviews of a variety of U.S. military special operators. We then built the narratives, but um, then... Before we shot off the drafts, we shared it with the sergeant's course at the academy that trains U.S. special operators. So it's both of the large strategy. Is this the kind of mission I might receive to, okay, this specific part of it, is this really what a Green Beret sergeant would say or not? If it passes muster with them, then it's you know both realistic, but it's also forward-looking. That was the best-selling author, Peter Singer. This is The Foreign Desk. You're listening to The Foreign Desk, now with me, Christy O'Grady, Emma's co-producer and the show's audio editor. You're probably well aware now that for the last two years or so, we at The Foreign Desk have been adventuring around Europe, meeting heads of state and military at various security conferences. Big up to our friend Roger and the Globesec team. What I love most about these trips, except the hotels and the cuisine, is that they allow us so many chance encounters with individuals who are actually on the ground doing the work that we go on to discuss on our humble podcast. At the Munich Security Conference, we were feet away from the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, Vitaly Klitschko, the Mayor of Kyiv, and witnessed President Ilham Aliyev of Azerbaijan make probably the most Disney villain entrance I've ever seen in real life. But the best part was the serendipitous moment where I got to chat with my seatmate on the flight home. 
a bleary-eyed man named Scott Young told me he'd been to MSC on behalf of BMW as part of his work advising on the effects of AI and geopolitics. He told me he was a fan of the Foreign Desk and gave me his details should we ever need his services. Half a year later, when Emma brought up the idea of an episode on AI and geopolitics, I knew who to email. Here is Scott Young, Senior Analyst with Eurasia Group's Geotechnology Practice, on how to govern in a world with this new, ever-changing technology. This is a case where my answer is going to sound like an overstatement today and an understatement 10 years from now. But as far as I can see it, artificial intelligence is going to be radically, just massively, massively transformative. It's going to open up our lives and society in new ways, reaching impossible to imagine scientific advances and unprecedented access to technology for billions of people. But it's also going to rapidly spread myths and disinformation in a way that it's going to disrupt democracies, it's going to precipitate real and very painful economic upheaval. I believe it's going to trigger a seismic shift in the structure of geopolitics, and we're right at the beginning of understanding what that means. What are we seeing in terms of regulation, and does any of it fill you with great optimism that anybody has learnt anything from their failures to get to grips with the challenge posed by social media, for example? There is really two ideas or two things that, that we should consider when it comes to AI regulation. The first one is that we don't need to reinvent the wheel. The general purpose nature of AI is such that it's going to permeate horizontally across the entire economy, including many sectors where there are already existing robust regulatory frameworks. These things that have stood the test of time. This is transportation, safety, health, finance, product liability frameworks, data protection. These systems are in place for a reason. It's not an all-encompassing solution, but it will cover a fair bit of the economy. The challenge is that you do need a consistent framework across sectors. Now, that's, that's within countries. The same logic does hold true at the global level, but it's a little trickier to navigate. Every international institution and agency is going to have to become an AI agency in the same way that they've incorporated the internet into their operations. That runs across the UN, the Bretton Woods system. The problem, however, is that artificial intelligence is a unique general purpose hyper-evolutionary technology with very low barriers of entry, all of which makes it much harder to govern. I'm originally from Canada, and there's that great line from the Canadian philosopher Wayne Gretzky that you need to skate to where the puck is going to be. If you apply that to AI, you need governance that meets AI's future use cases, not just its use cases today, except we still don't know what those use cases are going to be in the future. How do you skate to a puck that could go in multiple directions all at once? So my, my main point here, Andrew, is to really underscore the challenge of governing and regulating technological advances that don't yet exist, but also to emphasize that we can't wait for them to exist. We need good future-facing rules in place beforehand that are grounded in core principles. To be clear, though, I am less worried about the existential concerns associated with artificial general intelligence. I'm much more focused on the near-term consequences of what malicious actors can do when it comes to electoral outcomes, when it comes to markets, when it comes to healthcare, and other decisions that rely on trustworthy information. 2024 is going to be a massive year for elections around the world, not just in the United States, but also Taiwan, India. We're going to see this play out in real time. And just to be really clear, when I say malicious, nefarious actors, I'm not just referring to organized criminals or terrorist groups, but also adversarial states, especially the ones that win big in asymmetric conflict situations where a little bit of money can go a long way. 
That was Scott Young, Senior Analyst with Eurasia Group's Geotechnology Practice. And that's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.